Take your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Luke. While you're turning there, I will just mention something that is um, important for our church this week. So many of you know, some of you may not, we are having our Bible conference this week beginning Wednesday night at 6.30 and lasting through the rest of that week, this week into Sunday, looking at the Reformation. I would encourage you to be back. Uh, that will be an uplifting time explaining really what the Bible teaches about salvation uh, is really what the, the week's going to be about. So it'll be an encouraging time, uh, an informative time, an upbuilding, uplifting time. So if you can, be back every night this week at 6.30 beginning Wednesday uh, for, for a wonderful week of worship and studying God's Word in perhaps an extra way. Uh, Brian will mention more of that at the end of our service. All right, Luke chapter 9 this morning, we come to verse 51, another uh, negative passage in one sense with a positive truth in it. We see and get to benefit from seeing another mistake of the disciples. Um, we don't necessarily rejoice in their wrongdoing, but we can learn a lot from their wrongdoing. And that's what will happen today. We actually come to, though it's written in a, in a negative sense, uh, containing yet another rebuke from the Lord, uh, it's an incredibly encouraging passage for us today. It's one where we can find a fresh breath of air. It's a passage that can address and does address and will address that hurting soul that some of us are currently experiencing or may soon be experiencing. We know the reality of our lives and that we live and are plagued with the problem of sin, right? And that's what we're talking about primarily. If we could just begin by jumping off into the deep end, we're not going to be talking about, like we have in recent weeks, we're not going to be talking about just the, the normal difficulties of living in a sinful world or the normal hardships, natural hardships that occur in this life. We're actually going to be addressing the issues of the heart as it pertains to sin. And many of us today, if we would be so bold to admit to ourselves, have made sinful choices in life that are currently plaguing us today. We've gone down a path of worldliness and we followed the flesh of our, our hearts, the sinful desires of our hearts, We've even done that recently. We've even done that this morning and, and yesterday. Not a one of us are immune to it. And we are wondering how to deal with such things in our hearts. Or maybe we have made sinful choices decades ago. That today we are still plagued by regret for those choices. You know how many believers actually struggle with guilt for their choices in life? You know how many Christians, born again believers, are crippled and plagued with shame for some of the things that they've done and some of the choices that they've made? How many people live their lives and, and walk with Christ under the umbrella of regret. Many Christians do. 
we're not only dealing with sin that we've dealt with today, presently, we're dealing with sin that has, has been a part of our lives for, t- for some time and part of our past, and yet even today our hearts are filled with guilt and shame and regret over such matters. And most Christians have the same question. What do we do about it? How do we handle it? What is the answer for our guilt? And what is the answer for our shame? The rate of sin has not decreased since the fall, has it? And because of that, the rate of lingering guilt and shame has not decreased in the human heart. So what's our answer? Well, I tragically would admit that I have witnessed far too many people seek a solution for their guilt and for their shame in too many wrong things. And how many of us could testify to that? We've done that in our own lives. I know and I experience guilt for something that I've done and I have sought relief in X, Y, and Z too many times. Whether that be uh, alcohol to numb the pain or or addiction of some sort. You know how many people I've visited with that think abortion will deal with the guilt that they have for an unplanned, out-of-wedlock pregnancy. X, Y, and Z can be anything, and they can be a number of things. The world has a plethora of false ideas of how to deal with the guilt that we feel in our hearts. And too often, we buy into those lies, right? And then we can take it a little further and we think that the answer to our guilt and our shame is merely addressing the symptom of the disease. Covering up the external behaviors, forgetting that every single sin in our lives is a heart sin manifested in external ways. We don't even really know where to begin to address the issue of such things. Oh, what a heavy topic we come to today in Luke chapter 9. And yet, what a life-giving subject we come to. Because like I said at the beginning, if we are going to be bold enough to be honest, every one of us would say, I have or I am feeling what you are describing. I've made a choice this week that I am. wish I could have back. I've made a choice in life that plagues me to this day. And my walk with Christ is actually defined by fear, regret, hesitation, confusion. You know how many believers are plagued with the thought that they they come to Scripture and they read everything that the Bible has to say and they say, I'm the one the, the wicked one Scripture describes and I have a hard time believing the promises of Christ and forgiveness. You know how many times I've been there or I know Romans chapter 8, verse 1. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I'm not sure I'm in Christ. Because I make such choices. And I deal with such regret. And such shame in my life. That describes many, many people. And the problem is because we often have a wrong understanding of who our Jesus is. We deal with guilt in the wrong way. and We deal with shame in the wrong way. And we're unsure how to deal with such things like regret. And we seek 
solutions and answers and all the wrong things because mainly we're unsure who Jesus is. Yes, He's the Son of God. And, and yes, we believe He died for our sins. But I have a hard time understanding His heart and what He stands for and what He desires and who He loves and why He loves. Because of that, people find themselves spending a lifetime trying to live with or mask over a problem in their hearts of guilt and shame and regret, heartache. And because of that, people have this hopeless place in their lives that they live in. And they wonder often, where do I turn and what is my answer and where is my source of hope? In fact, I would say most people I have the honor of sitting down with to counsel through a, a particular issue in their life, it all boils down to guilt that is not brought under the heart of Christ. And that's what we find today in this text. The heart of Jesus. And it's a heart, and Jesus is a person that can absolutely and totally, completely deal with every ounce of guilt and shame and regret that burdens our hearts. The Jesus of the Bible and the heart of Christ that we get to witness today in this text is a Jesus that can free you from lingering doubt because of the choices you've made in life. Lingering guilt. Now, it is easy to see why it's important that we should know the heart of Christ, but let me remind you, we have an active enemy who would love nothing more than to confuse us about Jesus and distract us from who He really is and what He really delights in. Too many, as I have said, buy that lie and they believe God is angry with them, has disregarded them, doesn't have grace for them. Unbelievers feel the same way in a different sense. They think they are too sinful for Christ. They've done too much. They haven't cleaned themselves up enough. Haven't got their act together yet for Christ. And they see Jesus only as a judge instead of a, a merciful God. But when we come to the text today and we see the heart of Christ, we we begin to see the truth of Christ and we see something vastly different than what the enemy wants to paint for us. What we find today in Luke chapter 9, verses 51-56 through is a Savior who has a heart full of mercy and a love for sinners that is at times beyond our comprehension. This is the Christ we encounter in Scripture So that we can say today after a text like this, we can completely and confidently say after a text like this, if you struggle with guilt and shame and regret and doubt and fear, this Jesus is the one to turn to. And this Jesus is the one who has dealt with that for you. What we learn today is that mercy is a mark of Christ. Mercy is a defining mark of Christ. And as we look at His heart, 
we see His mercy extended to sinners is the answer for not just behavioral sins, but the heart sins that we have and the guilt that we feel for heart sins. The guilt that lingers in our souls and plagues us and corrodes our hearts and leaves us in anguish. This mercy exhibited by Christ is the answer for such matters. That's the Jesus of the Bible. And let me, let me tell you with, with passion and conviction in my heart, don't buy the lie that you have to turn to something in the world for relief. For the anguish in your heart. The shortcomings of, of who you are and what you've done. In fact, I was reading with a group of guys a passage in, in Romans. We're reading through the book of Romans again. Um, such a rich and, and blessed book. And chapter 3 is, is kind of so... The, the the climax of the first part of the book of Romans and it's so so powerful and so moving for us and we know the very clear and defined verse of Romans three verse twenty three all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but we often forget verse twenty four and twenty five all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ whom God put forward to be received by faith. Church, that is the answer to our heart's dilemma and the guilt that plagues us. We have a Savior who longs to justify by grace. And we find that today in Luke chapter 9. A Jesus who is marked by mercy. Mercy that we need to understand. Mercy that will really cure the problem in our lives. Mercy that eliminates the need to run to anything else. Mercy that gives genuine relief. Mercy that, that frees us from guilt and shame and regret. Listen to me. You who are plagued today, you find your answer here. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Let's read the passage. Then I'll walk back through it and try to make my case to you. Verse 51, Luke writes, When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, referring to Jesus, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. And He sent messengers ahead of Him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. I think this passage just totally exemplifies the mercy of Christ. And I think we first see it in verse 51 that mercy is the, motiv the motivation of Christ. Mercy is His very motivation. Now, let's define mercy just real quickly. Use the word a lot already. Mercy is when you aren't giving something that you deserve in a negative sense. So, 
Mercy is when someone owes you a debt and that debt is forgiven. Well, right off the bat, in verse 51, we see the greatest example and and arrow pointing to the greatest example of mercy that the world will ever know. We see Christ with His face set to go to Jerusalem. Now this is a, a major shift in the day-to-day ministry of, of Jesus. From this Before this point, He spent most of His time in Galilee, ministering to those villages there and, and on the Sea of Galilee and so on and so forth. Now He's leaving Galilee and He's going to Jerusalem. And when we read that He's going to Jerusalem, we know He's going to Jerusalem for the last time. Because He's going to not just the city of Jerusalem, He's going to the cross. He's already predicted this twice in Luke chapter 9. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be taken up. I'm going to die and be executed. When we read Luke say he's going with his face to Jerusalem, he's going to the cross this way. Church, it's, it's no secret to him when he leaves Galilee behind for the last time, what lies ahead for him? It's sacrifice. And it's execution. And that is the greatest act of mercy that the world will ever know. Because what happens at the cross? It's back to Romans 3. It's an act where all of those who have fallen short of the glory of God by faith can be justified through the grace of Christ as a gift. In fact, if you look back in Romans chapter 3, verse 26 of that chapter, you even see a further glimpse of what's going to take place when Jesus arrives to Jerusalem. Verse 26 of Romans chapter 3. All of these things, this death of of Christ, was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Now, if you've read... Uh, John Stott's wonderful book, The Cross of Christ. You'll know chapter 2, I think it is, he entitles The Problem of Forgiveness because there is this theological kind of divine problem of God forgiving sins. Why is that? God is perfect, and in His perfection, He's perfectly just. And a perfect just judge and a perfect just God cannot what? Ignore sin, can He? If He does that, He's no longer just. And if He's no longer just, He's perhaps cruel. So what happens? How does God forgive? How does He exercise His desire to forgive sinners and His love to forgive humanity and His His heart of mercy that we find in Luke 9? How does He act that out? He sends Christ so that Jesus can be punished for sin. And God can remain just in dealing with sin. And yet also, He can be the justifier to forgive sinners. When we read in Luke chapter 51, Christ has His face set to go to Jerusalem and He's on that journey. We read that He's going to take care of the justice of God and the justification of sinners. It is the greatest act of mercy. Not giving us what we deserve. And said, taking it upon himself. And it is what motivates him to go to Jerusalem. He wants to show mercy. Let that sink in for a moment. 
God who we have transgressed and sinned against wants to show mercy. He's not being forced to Jerusalem. He's not being drugged to Jerusalem, is he? He's not being tricked to go to Jerusalem. His own face is set to Jerusalem. His own heart is devoted and committed and resolved to go to the cross. When He predicts His death, He's saying these things must take place and it is no secret to Me and I'm going to do it willingly, right? John 10, no one takes My life from Me. I lay it down of My own accord. Because I want to deal with sin and be the justifier of sinners. Our Lord has a heart marked by mercy and that mercy is His motivation to die. I want to be the sacrifice so that I can extend mercy. What we find coupled with Romans 3 and the legal aspect of the cross, is that Jesus, and don't miss the key word, Jesus desires to pardon sinners. It's the very desire of His heart. Not that anyone deserves it, but that He longs to extend mercy. He longs to show mercy. How does, that, how does that help us in our walk? You who are plagued with guilt and shame and regret need to look to a Savior who longs to be merciful. The antidote and the medicine to a guilty heart is the mercy of Christ. He's motivated by mercy. Resolute, fixed, and determined to die. And each step away from Galilee and towards Jerusalem proves it. I have in my notes here, and I think it is worth saying as a disclaimer, that this is not a universal mercy. It's enough mercy for every single person, and yet it is not applied to every single person. It's a mercy that must be, back to Romans 3, received by faith. You may be dealing with with guilt and shame and, and regret and doubt and anguish and pain over the choices you've made in life. But let me tell you something. Just because Christ died on the cross doesn't mean your heart's going to be cured. You must turn to Christ in faith for this mercy. And I think of, as I was studying, I thought of Luke chapter 18. That's a beautiful picture of this. The, the, the story Jesus shares of the tax collector and the Pharisee praying. And the Pharisee says, I, God, I thank you that I'm not like these sinners and that tax collector and, and this, that, and the other. And then the tax collector comes and Jesus says in Luke 18, verse 13, the tax collector standing far off would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, what? Be 
merciful to me, a sinner. There is the mercy applied by faith as this tax collector appeals to the heart of God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say about that man? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. The answer to the guilt in your heart and the problem of your sin and the consequences that you're reaping because of your sin, we, we all have them. The way to deal with that is not just saying, good, Christ died on the cross. It is turning to Christ in faith and His work on the cross. Letting that mercy be applied to us. So mercy is the motivation of Jesus. Number two, in verses 52, 53, and 54, we find that mercy is the expectation of Jesus. Mercy is the expectation of Jesus. Since it is part of His heart, His character, His nature, it's expected of all who would walk with Him in faith. Now, it's a long journey from Galilee, which is the north part, if, if we're going to get a little geographical here, is the north part of the country. Jerusalem and Judea is the south part. Right in the middle is a, a place called Samaria. Most Jews, because we're going to talk about it in a second, don't like Samaritans. They would actually go around Samaria, Samaria into another country to get to Galilee. The fastest route, however, is to go from Galilee straight south through Samaria to Jerusalem. Jesus is doing that. And as He's doing that, taking that fast route, He sends a delegation ahead of Him to make preparations to get food together to secure some lodging for the evening, uh, perhaps even for a couple of days so that they can minister. And that's where the problem arises in this text. That, that's where the negative aspect of the text begins to take shape. Because the delegation goes in verse 52 to this village of the Samaritans to, to make these preparations. But, verse 53, the people didn't receive Him because His face was set to Jerusalem. Now we know, or maybe we, we should know, or will know, there is a major hostile problem between the Jews and the Samaritans. Many, many, many years before this, the group of people was, was conquered. And, and some Jews were taken captive to another place, and some were left behind. And those who were left behind began to intermarry with their Assyrian captors and they became known as the Samaritans. So that the Jews, when they returned back to the land, saw them intermarrying and said, you are unclean half-breeds and no longer part of the people of God. And that's where the, the religious tension grew between these two groups of people. So the Jews hate Samaritans. They despise them. They disregard them. They kick them out of the worship of God. And as a repercussion, the Samaritans do the exact same thing. So for centuries, there's been this re religious hostility. And the Samaritans respond by fashioning their own religious system. They even have their own uh, Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And, and then later, even the Jews will come and destroy that temple as an act of hostility. And then there's another uh, account recorded where Samaritans snuck into the temple in Jerusalem and threw dead bones everywhere to make the place unclean. 
And it's that kind of tension that's going on and on and on. And in fact, as Doug referenced earlier, in John chapter 4, we find that even in the time of Christ, this hostility is still going on. As, as Jesus ministers to this woman at the well in John chapter 4, she brings up this hostility. In verse 19 of John 4, the woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. There's this big religious divide between us, and we don't get along. We hate each other. That's what she's saying. Well, Jesus doesn't care, and never has cared, and never will care about social stigmas. And He goes to this village in Samaria most likely to rest and minister. But the hostility and the hatred is so embedded in the Samaritans that they reject Him because they know He's going to Jerusalem. He is a Jew and He believes the place to worship is in Jerusalem. They don't know He's going to the cross. And so because of those social hostilities, the Samaritans, in complete ignorance, mind you, reject Jesus. It's an act of prejudice, isn't it? They're acting out on their stereotypes. And they really have no idea who they've just kicked out of their village. And... I don't want you to think I'm trying to dismiss their actions. They are completely not right in doing so. That's the problem that arises here. The disciples respond in verse 54 in another problem. As can be imagined, they are actually enraged that their master would be rejected. They've walked with Him all this time. They've committed themselves to Him. They've seen Him do great acts of mercy and kindness. And they've come to fully believe in who He is. And they are mad with misguided zeal and misguided passion at the Samaritan's rejection. And so their flesh rises up. You see, the Samaritans reject Jesus in ignorance. The disciples reject the Samaritans in arrogance. They still think they're better than the Samaritans and they want to do something about it. So verse 54, James and John see this happening and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? These ignorant Samaritans have rejected you. Let's wipe them out. Let's see another Sodom and Gomorrah take place. Let's destroy every last one of them. Let's wipe their village off the map. In fact, as intelligent men as they are, they're quoting something that's already happened in Scripture. 2 Kings chapter 1. We read of a very familiar story. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 9, Then the king sent to Elijah a captain of fifty men with his fifty men. And he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and begins to harass him. He says to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, 
If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent another captain of fifty men with his fifty, and he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. John and James are thinking in their minds, it's happened before in Scripture, and not only before, it's happened twice in one instance where a man of God has had the fire of heaven come down to vindicate him to those who are persecuting and hostile to him and rejecting him. How much more so Jesus, who is a man of God, who is God, We've come to know and believe how much more will fire come down and consume these people. There's a lesson, right? Just because you're zealous and you might have a Scripture passage backed up for your zeal doesn't mean you're using that Scripture passage correctly. Because the disciples certainly are not. They're being cruel. They're being judgmental. And they respond in condemnation and instead of mercy. And it's expected of all those who walk with Christ to be merciful as Christ is merciful. In fact, some of your Bibles at the end of John and James's statement may have a, a footnote. It should have a footnote where it's tagged on in some manuscripts. Let us call down fire from heaven to consume them as Elijah did. Let us destroy these people for rejecting you, Jesus. And what happens? Jesus rebukes them. You guys got it all wrong. You have it completely wrong. We will not call fire down upon these people. You need to see people through the eyes of Christ, through my eyes. And you need to extend mercy. Mercy is expected of those who walk with Christ because mercy is at the center of the heart of Christ. And that's where these disciples went wrong. They'd been with Jesus. Again, they'd witnessed His acts of mercy. They've heard Him teach about mercy. They should also respond in patience and in mercy. But they do not. Now we can bring this to our time, can't we? Are we willing to show mercy to the people we're called to minister to? Maybe they have different political views than us. Maybe they're the individual across the street who is stuck in the addiction of drugs. Maybe... It's the individual who has plagued their own life with their own choices of sexual immorality. Are you and I willing to show the mercy of Christ to those who need the mercy of Christ? Because those who walk with Jesus are expected to show the mercy of Jesus. Now then, back to what we have begun talking about this morning, the guilt and the shame and regret in our hearts. Church, we as Christians and the church of Christ ought to be the place of mercy. Where brothers 
and sisters can come with guilt in their hearts and shame in their hearts and regret for their choices and find a place of freedom to confess and find the love of Christ. I have asked many times as I've sat down with people with problems in their life from their own choices, Lord, would You give me the honor of reflecting You to them because they need to see You today. Sometimes I am not merciful. Sometimes I am not compassionate. Sometimes I am not patient or kind. Lord, I need You to do a supernatural work through me today meeting with this individual because they need to see You and I want them to see You in my words and actions towards them. We are to be a merciful people. Because our Lord is merciful. And the mercy He's shown to us, we ought to show to one another. And we ought to show to the lost. So that this is a place where we can walk through and out of sinful choices together into the life and the grace and the freedom of Christ. How often are we buying the lies of Satan saying that I will not and I cannot confess my sin to a brother or a sister because they'll think less of me. Oh, by our behavior and our love for one another and the mercy we show to one another, that lie should never have a ground in our hearts. Because like Christ, we are to be merciful people. Mercy is the motivation of Christ. Mercy is expected of those who follow Christ. Do you know how many people are in our community that desperately need to see the mercy of Christ shown through us? We're not the only ones who hurt. Thirdly, mercy is practiced by Jesus. Mercy is the motivation of Jesus. Mercy is the expectation of Jesus. And mercy is the practice of Jesus and I say practice because of the actual actual rebuke he extends to the disciples. You notice he doesn't respond to the Samaritans' rejection. Yeah, they're wrong in rejecting him. Don't miss that. But he doesn't say a word. Luke doesn't report a word about that from Christ. The only response Jesus issues is a rebuke for the behavior of the disciples. Don't look at people through your eyes. Look at people through my eyes. And in my eyes, they aren't going to get consumed with fire. I'm going to Jerusalem for them. His rebuke, in my understanding, is an act of mercy to the Samaritans. Because in reality, He could have called down fire. In reality, they could have been condemned for rejecting Him. In reality, they have just kicked the Son of God out of their village and that could have had severe consequences. But Christ says, we're not going to respond like that. My face is still set to Jerusalem. And my heart is still set on the cross. And I will die even for the rejecting Samaritans. His rebuke to His disciples shows He's merciful even to the Samaritans. Patient with them. Willing to die for them. 
and willing to send the gospel to them. Acts chapter 1.8, he commissions his disciples, take the gospel to Samaria. He's merciful to those who don't deserve mercy. Right. To us. Romans chapter 5, let's read this verse. Here is perhaps the greatest cure to the guilt in your hearts. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Famous verse, yet one that is worthy of daily meditation. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the what? The clean? Those who've got it all together? Those who walk perfectly with God? He died for the ungodly. Those who are a mess. Those who are guilty. Those who are shameful. Those who do reject Him and kick Him out of His village. And He died for those who would call down fire on anybody they disagree with. John and James. How do we deal with the guilt and the shame and the regret in our hearts? We remember Christ died for the guilty. He became guilty for the guilty. He became shameful for the shameful. That's the mercy of our Lord. John and James want to wipe out the Samaritans. Jesus says, I came to die for the Samaritans. How dare you think we're going to call down fire to consume them? But not only that, I think we can extend this mercy in practice to even John and James themselves. Because although Jesus has to rebuke them, although they act in pride and arrogance here, what He's not done with them, is He? He doesn't write them off. They get rightful discipline and they get rightful correction and they get rebuke from the mouth of the Lord Himself and yet He is not finished with them. John is going to go on to write the greatest gospel, in my opinion, about the love of Christ. He's going to be preserved by Jesus to have the revelation to write the book of Revelation. He's going to be an encourager in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He's going to be known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom at the Last Supper was reclining against the Lord in intimacy and love. In fact, when somebody comes to faith in Christ or somebody's considering Christ, what do we typically tell them? Go read the Gospel of John because right there you'll have the clearest picture of the love of Christ. This man who wants to call down fire on Samaritans will one day pen a Gospel that says Jesus loves the ungodly and desires to redeem them, He will write with His own hand, God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Christ isn't done with John just because He had to rebuke him. That's mercy. Christ isn't done with James. In the early church, James is going to be one of the most well-respected and highly regarded pastors. In Jerusalem. Christ isn't done with us when we make arrogant, bold, rash, ignorant statements. Christ isn't done with us when we make condemning, guilty, shameful choices. Christ isn't done with us when we fall off the narrow path into the mire of sin. Christ has a heart of mercy 
for us. And it's not just a mercy in His heart. And it's not just a mercy that motivated, motivated Him to the cross. And it's not just a mercy that He expects us to have. It's a mercy that He practices towards us each and every day. That is Jesus. His rebuke, church, is packed full of mercy. Mercy not to condemn the Samaritans and mercy not to give up on John and James. How important is that for our own personal lives? We are plagued with sin, each and every one of us. All fall short of the glory of God. Doesn't matter if you've been a believer 50 years, one year, or you're not a believer yet. Every one of us struggle with sin. And the enemy would love nothing more than your heart to be plagued by the guilt of it. And here's your answer, the mercy of Christ. A mercy that consumes Him and a mercy that drives Him. A mercy that encompasses His actions. In fact, He's going to inspire the writer of Hebrews to give one of the most encouraging texts in all of Scripture. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, one who acts on our behalf, Jesus, the Son of God. Since we have Him, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is what? Unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a high priest who was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because of this, because of the care and compassion and mercy of Christ, he writes this, verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The identifier of the throne of God is the throne of grace. As he say, let us draw near to this throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now there's some key words there we need to stop and, and reflect upon. Mercy. God knows even on this side of the cross and even after giving our lives to Him and, and, and having salvation, in the process of sanctification, we are still going to mess up and still be in need of mercy. So He says, come to Me for it. Draw near to Me in confidence for this mercy. Grace. Find grace. At this throne, come to me for grace. And then he says, help in time of need. You are going to be in need. Keeping with the theme today, you're going to have faced the need of dealing with your guilt for your sin and dealing with your sin itself. What does the Lord say about this throne? Draw near where you can find help. We have a Savior who wants to help in our time of need by showing us mercy and giving us grace. That's what we see in Luke 9. I'm going to the cross motivated by mercy to die for the Samaritans and to die for John and James. To redeem John and James and the Samaritans. That they may forever come to me for mercy and for grace to find help in time of need. Church, how do we deal with our own hearts? The sin of our hearts. The guilt of our hearts. The shame in our hearts. 
the regret. How do we liberate ourselves from the attacks of the enemy to walk freely with Christ? Even though we still fall short of the glory of God and commit sin. Even though we still struggle with ungodliness in our hearts. Let me tell you, it is by resting in the mercy of Jesus. We have a Savior who has a heart of mercy. That tells me two things. Number one, unbeliever this morning, you can come to Christ in faith and find this mercy. You can surrender your life today. You do not have to be clean enough. You do not have to have it together. You do not have to be good enough before you come to Christ. You can find mercy now by faith in Christ. And believer, as you walk through and wrestle through this pilgrimage of the Christian life, you will be attacked left and right by the enemy and by your own flesh. Find security in this Jesus. And don't, like so many, turn to the falsehood solutions of the world for relief. Stand in the mercy of Jesus for relief. Trust in the mercy of Christ for freedom. Turn and look to the mercy of Jesus for hope and victory. And don't forget we have a Savior who wants to show us mercy. Lord, I do thank You for Your Scriptures because we learn of Your heart. You had to be convinced in Your heart to go to Jerusalem knowing You would die. Your heart is what caused You to rebuke the disciples when they were acting out of condemnation. Lord, doesn't Your rebuke itself show us that You have a heart of patience and mercy toward those rejecting Samaritans and even towards those disciples who want to condemn. You could have called down fire like Elijah. You could have called down legions of angels to deliver you from the cross. You could have wiped out every piece of creation in the, at the fall in Genesis 3. But the fact that you rebuked the disciples for thinking such things shows us that you care to redeem. You desire to redeem. Thank you for setting your heart towards the cross. I thank you for every step you took towards Jerusalem. Every step of continued and furthered commitment to show me, show us mercy by taking on our sin. Oh Lord, I need to know desperately, we need to know desperately that the answer to life's problems and the heart's issues is not in anything but in You. Help us to know and rest in this mercy. We love You, Lord Jesus. We thank You and we pray this all in Your name. Amen.